Hello and welcome to the Wildlife Garden Podcast with me, Ben. And me, Ellie. And it's our birthday! Woo! Happy birthday to us! Happy birthday! No. Okay, I'll stick to the bird impressions. Okay, go on, do one. Oh, God! Go, cut, now, me, cut on the spot! Go. Field Fair. We go saw on. loads of them. All right. Uh, Yeah, they sort of chatter at each other. Very nice. Thanks. Happy birthday to us. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Yeah, uh, what we got coming up today? Well, we have, we've got some news. Um, we've also got our gardening correspondent from around the world. Thank that's, you very much. That's stretching it. Well, this one came from Nottingham, so it's quite close. <laughs> but we invite people from around the world. So if you're listening and you want to get in touch, please do. Uh, what else have we got? We've got the, our top three things that we've each learned from doing this podcast. Yes, that's right. And then we're going to quiz each other. We're going to have a round of, can you remember what we said? Uh, yeah, we said last uh, episode that some of our listeners probably know more about the things we talk about than us, because you've listened to the, us multiple times, whereas we do it once and then probably forget. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you get to hear us um, challenge each other. Yeah, play along if you like at home. But just before we go on to the news, you did our Big Garden Bird Watch. Yeah, it was more like an hour's meditation because I... Silent retreat. It was like a silent retreat because there was not almost not a single bird we had one wood pigeon and we normally have about <laughs> six wood pigeons in our garden so I don't know where even they were and it didn't even land very long it just it kind of flew down to the bird table and then buggered off from seeing online that seems to be the trend you wait till the big garden bird watch and then nothing comes into your garden to be fair to the birds it was a very very stormy weekend that's true I mean true. I wouldn't want to be out and about in that if I was flying no <laughs> <laughs> Yes, but in, importantly though, if you had a similar outcome and you did your bird watch, please do submit your results because that is equally important and valuable information. Yeah. So we we will be submitting our one wood pigeon to the RSPB. You know, if ten years ago you were seeing loads of some kind of finch, and uh, now you're not seeing any, it's important to record that you're not seeing any because that's how we know that populations are Precisely. declining. Precisely. Yeah. Very important. On to the news now, and first up is Ellie. Yeah, I've got some news from previous interviewee and academic Nick Chu. He and other scientists from the Universities of Bristol, Cardiff and Northumberland, and with the RHS, recently had another paper published. And this showed that urban gardens really are a dependable food source for pollinators throughout the year. And this sounds like something that we enlightened wildlife gardening folk all had an inkling of. But without the academic research done, no one can actually ever be certain. So this is really, really valuable stuff. The study started with the premise that urban gardens, which makes up around 16 to 36% of the land area of cities in different countries, are valuable habitats for pollinators, but that there was an uncertainty over how the floral and therefore the nectar and pollen resource varied from garden to garden. And there's the obvious differences in gardening styles of us garden owners, but also the variation in ne nectar production over the course of a year to sort of factor in. The team of scientists surveyed 59 residential gardens in Bristol over monthly intervals between March to October, and they found huge variation in nectar sugar production across the samples. So that is from just 2 grams to a whopping 1.6 kilograms of nectar. 
So what's the sample? Is that is that saying per area, per square metre or per garden? No, that was actually per garden. But importantly... Two grams. That is a massive range. Well, exactly. A huge range. But importantly, garden size wasn't actually a significant factor determining what the nectar production was in a garden. So, for example, I mean, I don't know where the two grams was found, but it could have been a large garden with just some lawn and some patio, or it could have been a really tiny garden. Like It didn't determine it. So that's really important for us small garden and even balcony or front doorstep owners because it shows that we can all do something for pollinators in our space. And more important is how you garden as opposed to how big your garden is. The study goes on to recommend planting nectar-rich shrubs in particular because they have a large number of flowers over a relatively small area of land. And of course, if money is a problem, they do actually cost less as well because you just put them in and leave them. Yeah, you can take up two square metres of your garden with, with one shrub, can't you? Precisely. And as gardeners can choose shrubs with a high nectar content and with complementary flowering periods, and that will then extend the flowering season. And of course, as we always say on this programme, choose open flower structures because then more species can access that nectar within the flower. Yeah, that's just saying not to go for double flowered varieties, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. But also what I found really interesting in the article, and this is something I hadn't considered, is that us gardeners tend to rely on things like salvia, linissa and fuchsia as our late flowering plants. And if you actually think about it, they are fantastic flowers and we do recommend them to provide nectar, but they all have quite long narrow tubular flowers so they're really only accessible by those long tongue species so if possible look out for late flowering plants that have a shallower flower yeah that's really interesting you are right we often recommend fuchsia in particular i'm not saying rip out your fuchsias if you've got them they're still fantastic plants but maybe think about putting something else in that is more accessible to other species yeah because like the flowers of ivy for instance are open and Mm. short so they're easily dabbed at by um, the short-tongued bees, but also hoverflies and some of the wasps and things as well. They all go for them because they're really easy to access. Exactly. While nectar production peaks in July overall due to the sheer abundance of flower in midsummer, over the individual gardens it hugely varied. And 22 out of the 59 garden samples peaked in flowering outside that May to July period. And in every single month, at least one garden peaked in nectar production. That's quite a surprise. In what way? Well, to have a garden peaking in March. Because we make great efforts to go out and plant lots of bulbs, early flowering things, especially, well, actually, we coming back to the shrubs, um, we talked last time, didn't we, about lots of the winter flowering shrubs yeah. that can go right the way through to March. But I don't know that any of the gardens we look after actually peak in March. No, but if you imagine you've got a really woodlandy sort of garden and all you can really grow is bulbs that flower really early in the season, then I guess that would probably cause that to happen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The effect of having lots of different gardens in an area and also having them all peak in nectar production at different times means that a pollinator in one particular town or city actually has access to a pretty stable supply of nectar all year round. The study showed that mean monthly nectar sugar production varied by a factor of just two throughout the whole sample year. And then this can then be compared with rural farmland, where the temporal peaks in nectar sugar production can be more than 10 times than the troughs. 
So actually gardens fared slightly better in terms of providing that access to nectar over the whole year for pollinators. Yeah, and what they mean there is if you go out for a walk in the countryside, in fact, we were walking out in the countryside at the weekend, uh, if you walk through farmland, we were going through quite a few rape seed fields Mm. and all of that um, rapeseed will flower at the same time and we went from field to field and it was all rapeseed so you would get this absolutely sort of huge crescendo of flowering over a really short period but either side of that there's nothing so there's this massive difference between yeah the peak and the trough and lots of other studies have found the same people like Dave Goulson have done work on this and in fact Nick's earlier paper also Mm. showed that um, there's a more steady flora resource in urban areas often. Yeah, and that's actually just down to the sheer fact that there are lots and lots of different parcels of, small parcels of land that are all being managed independently of each other. So you're just naturally going to get that diversity. And I'm never going to actually do justice to the people and work involved in this particular study. But just for some context, over 2 million floral units were recorded by the team. And that's individual flowers, isn't it? Individual two flowers, 2 million. That's a lot of pipettes. <laughs> yeah. And these belong to a massive 636 plant taxa across 98 families. And it all happened over just one hectare of land. You're just not going to get that in one big oilseed rape field out in the countryside. You know, I read the um, outcomes of this study. I've not read the whole thing yet, but I hadn't clocked that the total area was only one hectare. Yeah. yeah. That is amazing. Isn't it just? So yeah, just cram those plants in, guys, into your individual plots, but just be reassured that your neighbours doing different things is a really positive thing for habitats and, and just general diversity across the garden area. You've got some news today, haven't you, Ben? But yours is slightly worse than mine. Yes, it is. Well, we're returning to a story that we covered this time last year. The government is yet again allowing the use of the normally banned bee-killing pesticide thiamexatham, which is a type of neonicotinoid, and you might have heard us talk about those before. Under normal circumstances, it is illegal to use this pesticide, but it seems like every year the sugar beet industry, and British sugar in particular, I have to say, applies for a derogation from the law to use this neonic. And the reason that they use this, or they want to use it, is because there is a virus that is transmitted between plants via aphids. But as well as killing the aphids, these chemicals are, of course, extremely damaging to all sorts of insect life. Now, we should point out that this is a seed treatment. They're not actually spraying this. And the reason you use seed treatments is because they're taken up by the plant as they germinate and grow. And being a systemic pesticide, it means it spreads through the whole of the plant system into all of its cells. So then whenever an aphid comes and pierces sort of the leaf of one of these plants, it actually then absorbs that neonic and it kills the pest off. With sugar beet being a root crop, it's not actually grown for its flowers. So what the government are claiming is that there's not a risk to insects like bees because they're not going to be coming along to the flowers and taking in the nectar or pollen, which could contain the neonicotinoid. And to lessen this threat of other insects being affected, for 32 months after the treatment is used, no flowering crops can be grown on the piece of land where the treatment was applied. But at the same time, a herbicide is used to ensure no weeds, and we would call these wildflowers, of course, um, are allowed to grow, 
which would themselves take up neonics from the ground because actually these seed dressings leach out into the surrounding soil. So any other seeds that are growing can take these pesticides up. But what this means is that the government's big idea to protect all the other insects that are out in the countryside that rely on flowers for their food is to A, allow farms to apply this pesticide, but then B, to stop any plants at all flowering on that land for nearly three years afterwards. That's their logic. So while we're seeing 97% of our wildflower meadows disappeared, that's obviously just going to compound the problem yeah and while something like rapeseed at least you have that big crescendo of flowering at some time of the year none of that's going to be allowed so there's going to be not a single flower anywhere across any sugar beet planted land that is of course absolutely mad and it's even worse because the government's own advisors recommended against this license being granted so here i am uh, actually quoting from a wildlife trust press release and they said The September 2021 minutes from the Expert Committee on Pesticides said the committee agreed with HSE, that's the Health and Safety Executive's evaluation, that the requirements for emergency authorisation have not been met. And, they say, on the basis of the evidence presented to the Expert Committee on Pesticides, the committee agreed that it is unable to support an emergency authorisation under Article 53 of Regulation 1107-2009. The advisors also concluded that the pesticide water pollution caused by this decision will harm river life. Right, so that's the government's own advisors saying that this is obviously stupid. And it's a totally crazy thing to do because the government has just passed, this passed in November, the Environment Bill, which is supposed to halt species decline by 2030. Say one thing, do another. Yeah, quite. So if you want to do something about this, then just like last year, the Wildlife Trust have got together with loads of other organisations like Pesticide Action Network, RSPB, Bug Life, many others besides, and they've put together a website where you can go on it and put in your details and it will send a message to your local MP to encourage them to attend an upcoming debate on this issue. Now, often when environmental things are discussed in Parliament, if you actually look on the news, you will see that the chamber is nearly empty because most MPs don't even bother turning up for these debates so it's really important to make sure your MP knows this is something that they should care about and that you as their constituent care about it too so by going onto this wildlife trust website you fill in your details and it sends an automatic email to your MP telling them to go to this debate but after you've done that head over to the Bumblebee Conservation Trust's website Be The Change where they've put together a really useful website about how to support bees in your garden They even have bee menus for each month of the year, giving you ideas of what to grow to provide pollen and nectar right through the year. So they've got a page you can click on and you just tap bee menu for November and it comes up with loads of plants that are flowering late. And it's research like Nick Chew's et al that will go into those sort of lists as well. I actually hadn't been on their website for a while, so they've put quite a lot of effort into this. So I really, really do recommend going on there. And hopefully together we can offset some of the damage that is going on in the countryside. And of course, if you can, always try to buy organic fruit and veg, which is grown without neonics or many other pesticides, which brings us nicely in a very smooth segue to our latest gardening correspondent from around the country, organic gardener Bethan McIlroy. Hi, 
I'm Bethan McIlroy and I listen to the Wildlife Gardening Podcast and I'm here in the city centre of Nottingham on the Nottingham Organic Gardeners allotment. In the background you can probably hear the tram passing and local road noise but here on our allotment we have plenty of wildlife and abundance even on this frosty January morning. We have a crab apple with red berries and I was pleased to hear that um, they do really well for all the birds over winter. I'm just taking a look at our pond and making sure that there's a little bit of break in the ice and just having a look around we've got some logs that we've put around our seating area that are growing mushrooms and our frosted cabbages are looking ready to eat and I'm just going to have a potter around the allotment today turn the compost and listen to the podcast bye bye Thank you very much to you, Bethan, for sending us in your correspondence. Always great to hear what the Nottingham Organic Gardeners is up to. The site really is very, very beautiful whenever I've been. I went and helped uh, crush some apples for Apple Day a few years ago. And yeah, it's just really good fun. And actually, while we're on the subject of community gardens, if any of you out there don't have your own garden space to be able to grow anything, and lots of people are in this situation, then why not look up your local community garden? Because I'm sure there will be one near you you if you just look for it. And they're always screaming out for people to come and help. So well worth searching for. Yeah, it was my introduction to gardening, actually. Oh, it community was. gardens. Actually, this is quite a nice segue because today we're celebrating our one year podcast birthday, aren't we? Yep. And we thought that we would share with you, our long term listeners, how we actually even got into wildlife gardening. Because actually, both of us entered it through completely different routes, really, didn't we? And I wouldn't say they're particularly conventional either. No, well, at various times, you've been a coastal engineer. Oh, are you going to introduce me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not very conventional, is it? It's a pretty long-winded route into gardening, I yeah. have to say. We were interviewed by Ryan Dalton on Into the Wild podcast, weren't we? And he actually asked us this question. And I think I described it as, you often hear celebrity gardeners in particular talking about how they were sort of born in a garden and they were holding a trowel before they could say mum yeah and pottering like around that. with pottering the grandparents around. i i can't say that i was and I, I said to him that i wasn't born in a cabbage patch no. <laughs> <laughs> which is very true i mean I, my granny used to give me a broom every now and again and let me sweep her yard i remember that this is the granny who you'd go round to and would say, oh, it's a fun treat. We're going to clean the cupboards today. I mean, she had me hook, line and sinker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I Well, we used to have an amaryllis growing competition, me and my granny. And that's all I can really remember in terms of plants as I was growing up. So very late to the game, really. Yeah. And if you ask my mum or dad whether I cared about plants when I was younger, they, in fact, whenever I'm going for a walk with my mum now, she talks about the amazing transformation there has been because i used to just walk up and go yellow plant <laughs> green plant that was as far as i got when i was about 16 yeah now she can't walk half a step without you stopping to look at something with your loop yeah, which right. is actually probably more annoying than you as a teenager complaining yeah exactly <laughs> 
Yeah, so it wasn't a, sort of a natural jump into uh, gardening for either of us, was it? Yeah, we've both changed careers from things that weren't to do with gardening. But my sort of jump into the gardening world was through a, was through a community garden. It was called the Greenback Yard and it was in Peterborough. It's still going as far as I know. And uh, I can't say I did a lot of actual gardening there because they ended up having a bit of a spat with the council. So I ended up actually doing more office work than gardening. But it certainly made me realise how good gardens were just for you really you know just the the pleasure of being out in a garden that's where I learned that yeah and then you did your tree planting you can't miss that out that's very relevant oh that's right yeah I was working for a charity and I did actually that's when I realized I didn't want to work back in an office again I was half working in an office for a charity half going out and planting trees for it was sort of a government project that funding came down to our local charity and I just realized that I wanted to be outside all the time yeah and after that I uh ended up going back to uni I was studying for a master's degree and there was a point when it came to the end of that you'd already started gardening by then hadn't you I had yeah and I sort of thought do I want to do a PhD spend forever sitting in a library or do I just want to get muddy and get my hands in the soil so that's what I decided <laughs> yeah and I well as I said it was a really roundabout uh, journey into gardening but I, I studied geography and love geography, love the outside, always had a fascination with the outside, but just never even dawned on me that you could make a living in, in plants. It just wasn't introduced to me as a thing. So I kind of went through until my late 20s, not even understanding that that was an option. But as I say, after uni, became a coastal engineer. Then I dabbled at teaching, secondary school teaching. And the long and the short of it was that teaching pretty much broke me. And I was teaching geography. So I do really do love geography. But it wasn't the career for me. And I was signed off for about nine months in the end. And feeling a little bit at a loss as to what to do with myself. And we're still in Nottingham still. That's where I was teaching And yeah, just what did I do? I found a a course in permaculture. That was actually my route in. And thankfully, the Workers' Educational Association in Nottingham run courses for people who were in the position that I was at that time, jobless, didn't know what to do with my time. And I got onto a course, a fantastic course in permaculture. And it just opened my eyes to this whole world. And obviously the therapeutic sides of gardening is is just a given now. I think I think everyone agrees that being outside is absolutely brilliant for you. Yeah. And it really did help me, but also just the science that you can get involved in, really and truly. If you if you choose to, you can I mean, there are PhDs in, in plants, obviously. Botany is a science. And I just hadn't considered that. And I think it, I basically just sunk my teeth in and I haven't really looked back ever since. Yeah, so you ended up working with another gardener for a while, didn't you? I did, yeah. Doing sort of odd jobs. And you sort of built up the business from there. And I joined you after a year or a year and a half, was it? Yeah, I took Ben on board. Yeah. <laughs> uh, after you finished your master's, sort of invited you in. I don't think you ever really planned to be full time with me, but here we are. Yeah, well, later. this is why when we were on Ryan's podcast, he said, you know, how did you learn your love of gardening? I said, well, basically, I had nothing else to do. <laughs> yeah. And if you can believe it, I remember the first year that Ben worked with me, I did know a little bit more than him because of having done the course and I'd already started my Royal Horticultural Society Level 2 Diploma. Um, but he just, you just stayed silent basically, didn't you? For that full year, you were terrified of being asked any question about plants. Now I can't shut him up. (laughs) We've totally gone full circle. (laughs) Yeah, honestly, I, I was absolutely petrified because I knew nothing. You know, I felt 
what I rea- what I've realized the first two or three years of gardening was realizing that I knew nothing about plants at all because I'd sort of come from planting trees and doing a bit of orchard work so I thought I knew a bit about sort of apples and pears and things but then when I realized there's 8,000 species of plants in cultivation <laughs> you know and quite you know you're going to customs gardens and they're asking you what you should do with this plant when you should prune it how you sow it how you grow it I was I was terrified the thing to do in that situation is just to get your head down in the books yeah get out into gardens and learn but now when I go into a garden it's like seeing a load of old friends isn't it it is you sort of know these plants as characters yeah but as we always say on this podcast we are always learning because there is just such a huge amount of knowledge uh to acquire in, in plants and it depends on the level that you want to take it really but as we're quite nosy individuals we sort of just want to keep learning I can't promise that it all sticks, but you know. Well, we'll find out when we do our quiz later. (laughs) I'm terrified of this quiz. Just to go back one step, though, I did want to mention one person in talking about this, because as Ben said, I first started odd jobbing for another gardener. And this is before I really knew a lot about gardening. I cannot thank Kirsty Guy of Horticology enough for giving me that opportunity. And I was just her labourer for a while, to be honest with you. At late 20s, I was there with my spade, just digging where she told me to dig. But we had such a good time together. And if it wasn't for her giving me the chance and also at teaching me as we went along, I, I simply wouldn't have the business that we have together now. So thank you very much, Kirsty. Yeah. And in that note, I also wanted to say thank you to Gareth Richards, I don't know if we could have become gardeners without him as well. No. Because, you know, when the, these first few years, having him on WhatsApp, being able to say, what's this plant? I've got no idea what to do. You say for the first few years, we still do it now. Oh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think, well, I'd actually recommend to anyone listening, if you're not sure how to get into gardening, if you can look for someone like Kirsty Guy, the person that I garden with, then that is a really, really good route in. It also gives you a good taster for whether or not the outside working life is for you. Because while we absolutely love it, I mean, on the wettest, most miserable days, I can see why it isn't for everyone. <laughs> when you when you're sort of squelching around in your in your work boots and mud streaming down your face, it, I can see that not everyone would would enjoy that sort of working life. But we absolutely love it. <laughs> Yeah, if you are thinking of taking up a career in gardening, then we definitely recommend going and doing the RHS courses because they give you such a good basic understanding of what's going on. And we get contacted all the time with people saying they're just becoming gardeners. And that's our number one thing to go and do you know we've got some issues with it in terms of you have to do several modules on all the different things you spray onto a garden which we don't particularly like but apart from that it's it's a fantastic basis to to work from but then like ellie said you know just go and work with somebody else go and volunteer at one of these community gardens and it's amazing what you learn just by being around other people that know about plants it's like osmosis somehow, it is. isn't it you have to see a plant i've got the general rule that if i don't know what something is i kind of have to see it once then i might well i might see it three or four times actually and then i sort of got it in my head what it looks like over different seasons and then by chance usually i'll go to a garden center and its name will be there on a label and then it's sort of gone in and that's that's largely how i've learned a lot of the plants that i now know rather than sitting down and rote learning there is that as well obviously if you've got exams to take and stuff then you have to do that element and caroline bosher um one of our listeners is in the middle of her exams or very soon so she knows what that rote learning (laughs) 
everything feels like quite (laughs) (laughs) yes there's there's just so much to learn really but absolutely love it don't be afraid though that's that's our sort of number one tip really because yeah I really did the first year we were working I was really panicking (laughs) yeah but yeah it, it soon goes in so if you are just starting out on your sort of gardening journey just learning about what's out there then don't be worried by the fact that you know everybody else seems to know more than you you'll you'll catch up in no time I promise I also like the fact that you you just mentioned the RHS and having to go through all the pesticides that exist um, in terms of how they teach the course. That is changing, though. And as we spoke to Helen Bostock when we interviewed her, she is RHS sort of ambassador for wildlife gardening, if you like. She was saying herself that she's seen the change that is going through the RHS now. So while it's not something we condone in terms of spraying, knowing what is available is still an important thing to know about because then you know what you're fighting in a way I guess or or looking for alternatives to. That's right and it's part of the reason why we became wildlife gardeners sort of going on a couple of years after we'd started up the business we were doing our normal rounds and both of us you know already had the inclination that we didn't want to be spraying we already knew about the damage that it was causing but we weren't specifically organic when we first started up were we no we just said yes to everything because of the nature of t- starting a business from scratch <laughs> yeah yeah that's right yeah and um we ended up sort of we were having discussions amongst ourselves about whether we could make being organic sort of a viable business because you're really worried you don't want to lose all your customers because we were you know have to pay the rent and but we decided well one day actually well you can tell the story we were in somebody's garden and they were basically asking Ellie to spray some roses weren't they yeah it was a beautiful sunny day so that's a big no-no for spraying generally anyway and I was asked to spray some roses and I, I did do it actually I have to admit that it's my confession time um but I virtually started crying while I was doing it because I knew it was wrong and I knew that it was causing damage and Pretty much after that point, we decided that we should just go organic. Because It was like, in the van on the way home. Yeah, we just said, that's enough. Couldn't do it again. And we just outright refused from that point onwards. I mean, we sort of emailed all our customers as well. Yeah. And we did, <laughs> we sort of we made this announcement that we were going organic. And if you'd like to find another gardener, then please go ahead and do so. But thankfully no one did not one we thought not one person dropped us <laughs> we managed to convince everyone that it wasn't gonna result in their gardens being a smoking crater in the ground <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I, I mean i'm just so glad we did that and actually when we did that because you did the research beforehand in terms of other gardeners that were organic and you found just one other company and they're in cornwall i think yeah hardly anybody this is only three four years ago no, i think more like five now yeah yeah time flies but yeah I was just googling around to see if other people were doing this you know because we're not working on grand estates we're just jobbing gardeners maintenance gardeners and I was interested to know if anybody had gone the same route and at that time very very few but now yeah well uh, (laughs) I mean even in Nottingham I've seen advertised uh, I think three others that are organic at least yeah making it very explicit on their website that and that number is always increasing. And that is thanks in part to the communication on the news about how, you know, insectageddon and everything else. But also um, because there are alternatives that are increasingly available. So things like nematodes are becoming much more mainstream. People are understanding that they're an option. And yeah, I think all of it is absolutely positive stuff. Now, when we are contacted by people looking to start up as gardeners, 
I'd say nine out of 10 people that get in touch say they want to set up immediately as wildlife gardeners. Yeah. You know, they don't want to have to go through the rigmarole of, you know, doing all the other stuff first and then becoming wildlife friendly. They just want to set up as wildlife friendly organic gardeners from the off. And that is fantastic. And so we really wanted to say that don't be afraid to do that because there are absolutely people out there that are looking for that as a specific service. But also loads of people just want their gardening done and they to be honest don't care how you do it as long as you're making their garden look nice they really don't mind what you do and that's sort of a a two-edged sword because sometimes you want to encourage them to do more you want to get them involved in wildlife and they're sort of they're they're not going out of their way to install nest boxes and have flowers throughout more of the year and, and, and other things like that but sometimes yeah people are coming to us and saying well, in fact, we've just got one just around the corner from us. Somebody came and contacted us and said they want a garden that's good for bees and butterflies. Yeah, which it, and, and it's bare at the moment, yeah. which is fantastic because we can go in there from scratch and just make a wildlife garden. Well, that's the other benefit of doing what we do and, and, how, and advertising our business in the way we do it uh, as being wildlife, wildlife gardeners because people who want to make that change will get in touch with us now. So... It's sort of, I mean, it's very good for us because it, it appears like there's loads and loads of people or the, the majority of people are wanting wildlife garden. And while that might not be the case, it's just lovely to know that these people are out there and that we can help them. Yeah. Yep. And hopefully we'll make their gardens look so good that their neighbours will be interested and no, no, no. So yeah, there, there is the work out there for sure. Yeah. So don't be, don't be afraid of, of going organic if you're a professional gardener. No, but this actually, I mean, this is a, a, an episode of Segways, apparently, but we were also going to mention something that we were looking at doing in the future as well, because, and this is actually quite near future, we've had quite a few people asking us specifically for advice as to how to set up as a wildlife garden, like Ben said. And while we have been answering everyone's questions, it kind of got us thinking that there isn't actually the information out there for people like us, so professional gardeners who want to make that switch. And we've talked a lot about this and we've decided that we'd like quite like to run a course specifically for us professional gardeners. So people that are already in people's gardens who want to become organic and to do things for wildlife. So we are actually looking at running a day long course. We haven't fixed uh, any sort of location, but if you are listening and you're interested in this then please do get in touch because it'd be really good for us to know what sort of interest there actually is and we're in Nottingham by the way so you'd have to be willing to to transport yourselves to Nottingham but yeah I think uh, we're quite excited about doing this because it got us thinking about what we would have needed five years ago yeah that's right it's a shortcut for anybody who yeah wants to know the really the boring stuff <laughs> you know how you deal with you know what products you would use instead of pesticides um that's how, not boring well i mean it's <laughs> it's not the fluffy stuff is it no, you no. know but it's it's about how you actually get along with doing your work day to day without using all the horrible stuff so yeah if you are interested in that please do get in touch because we we won't run it unless you know people are interested we're looking for about 10 to 20 people 10 to 20 yeah it'll be a paid for event you will have to pay because we're gonna have to rent a, a space yeah we, we but we've really got no idea what the price will be yet because it depends on how many people are, are interested but we're thinking it'll be somewhere between 50 and 100 pounds for the day mm-hmm. yep so if you are interested in that get in touch and then in the long run we'd like to really set up and teach 
wildlife gardening to everybody not just to professionals yeah absolutely loving teaching at the moment I mean I was a teacher briefly uh it does feel good when when you're it passing on your knowledge to other people who are interested so that is the I'd say that's probably the medium to long-term plan for us it's gonna be a while off yeah but in the meantime we get to do this and we get to share everything we're learning with you guys So now you know a little bit more about us. We thought we'd look back over the last year and, well, first of all, we're going to do the, the top three things we think we've learned or the ways our minds have been changed with the, the topics we've covered over the podcast. So you can go first, Sally. Well, I've, I've kind of chosen a couple of specific things and then one more general thing. Yeah. So I might start with the general, actually. Yeah. Uh, we might have the same ones, actually. Possibly. <laughs> we'll see. We haven't talked about this. So my first one is that we as gardeners can't single-handedly reverse the terrifying statistics of wildlife decline, but that we can make a difference and that the best thing that any of us can do is to provide as large a diversity of plants as we possibly can into our spaces. Absolutely. In fact, is that of course, one of that's one of mine. Yes! <laughs> which was just... Snap. Well, mine was more concise, which was plant more plants. I don't do concise. Sorry. <laughs> Words. Love them. Honestly, we've learned through looking at the science of wildlife gardening. You can go two ways. There, you can look at things in a, a very detailed, complicated way, you know, and that's why we go into these these topics. But if you just want one piece of advice, it is to plant more plants, isn't it? Yep. Love them. Put them in your garden. <laughs> Let them do their thing. Then you're wildlife gardening. Number two, you go number two. Okay. Well, my number two was sort of following on from that. And it was thinking about, well, we're actually going to do some topics uh, this year. We're going to have another look at feeding birds. We're going to be looking again at doing no mo May. And that's because going into the detail of things... Sometimes it is important to see your garden in context. Now, if you go out and buy a wildlife gardening book, they're talking to you as an individual gardener, right? So they're saying, here's what you can do in your garden. And all of that advice is absolutely right. But what I want you to do and what I've realised is go upstairs, look outside at what your neighbours are doing and then do something a little bit different to what they're doing. Because like Ellie said, the diversity of gardens is really important. So if your next door neighbour has short grass, maybe you should have long grass. But if both your next door neighbours are doing no mo may and have really long grass, then maybe you have a, you know, a bit of short grass. Because it's that diversity that's important. If both your neighbours have got ponds, maybe a pond isn't the best thing that you can do. Maybe it's better for you to put in some spiky shrubs so the birds can nest. So actually, my... Second thing that I've learned is that it's really important to see your garden as part of your surrounding area. Nice. I like that one a lot. My second one is a little bit more specific again. And this actually came from Jeff Olerton's book, Pollinators and Pollination. And it's also relevant to today's news about Nick Chu et al's uh, research, re, like how insects access nectar in plants. And Jeff Ollerton talks about the group of plants that are called the core generalists. And this is plants which provide abundant nectar and pollen for a wide range of species. And they tend to fall into the plant families, Asteraceae, that's the daisy family, Caprifoliaceae, that's the scabiouses, and the umbellifers. And that includes the Apiaceae, so that's the carrot family, and the Aureliaceae. 
The reason why these are so good is because they produce flowers in dense flower heads. And that means that the small quantity of nectar produced in a single flower is actually made up for in the sheer number of flowers on the flower head. Also, the Rosaceae family, so the rose family, are really fantastic because they produce masses of tiny flowers over a short period of time. And all four of those groups also have high nectar recharge periods and tend to be abundant across any landscape. So if you're looking at providing nectar for all sorts of species, then those groups are really fantastic plants. My last thing is to talk about what we don't know. We don't know a lot. <laughs> and that's, Not as specifically. Like, well, that's also I true. I mean, us specifically and other people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because <laughs> botany, entomology is really hard. It's laborious to go out and observe every possible interaction out there. And it's a never-ending task. You know, we just cannot observe everything that is going on. Well, it's like, you know, have you ever heard of Darwin's Entangled Bank? No. Okay. I actually haven't. Charles Darwin describes the, uh, uh, sort of ecological interactions as an entangled bank because it's just it's just so complicated. Like our brains cannot mm. really compute all those interactions. Yeah. I really like that. That's why we give advice like plant more plants. And although we like to go into the detail in our native plant of the week, when we've tried to look um, for some plants for our native plant of the week, actually there has been hardly any research. And really common plants that you think would be heavily observed actually there's not that much information on them so yeah if you want to get involved there's loads of different recording schemes that you can go out and and join you can join in the uh, all the different charities the specialist charities out there because they're all looking for volunteers to help work out what is going on in our countryside because at the moment we know a lot but there's even more that we don't know i like that as i said i was going to have that one I'm glad I didn't. My last one is semi-linked though, and it's to do with the complications and, and complexity of the outside world. And that is that there's a parasitoid wasp for pretty much every invertebrate going, and that some parasitoids are attacked by other parasitoids in a sort of Russian doll of parasitoidism. And that it, blew my mind when I, exactly, we first read about that. It is mind-blowing. And it for me highlights how little we really see when we look at our plants because all this stuff's going on without us really even realizing it so yeah that's uh, that's something i'm taking home there's worlds within worlds out there that we can't even see so now we're going to go on to a round of do you remember what we said I'm dreading this. Do you so, know what? I bloody hate quizzes. I don't know why I agreed to do this. This is Ben's idea. Because I swear, if I'm told I'm doing a quiz and then someone asks me my name, I would forget. <laughs> I don't know what happens. My brain just goes, nope. Terry so. Pratchett in one of his books has got a nice image of when you're asked something and you see the information just running off into the distance. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> that's what happens. Bye. <laughs> anyway, we'll see how it goes. Okay. No pressure. I'm going to do all my five and then you can give me yours. Okay. Okay, so we've been back through the notes for the last year and I've picked out some of the things that you talked about. So we're going to find out if you remember what you said. Okay, question one. Which species of Ketoniaster was found to be 20% more effective at absorbing pollution than all the other shrubs looked at by the RHS? Ketoniaster franchettii. Yes! Yes! Woo! 
Well done. Okay, if that's the only one I get, I'll be happy. (laughs) That was really good. Number two. In the ancient Greek myth, which native wildflower sprung up near a reflective pool when Nemesis, the goddess of revenge, tricked a young hunter into falling in love with his own reflection? Narcissus pseudo-narcissus. Very good. The wild daffodil. See, you had nothing to be worried about. I think I've been meaner to you with my questions. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you told me not to be too harsh. Oh, God. Okay. Well, what about this one? Bad man's oatmeal was one of the old common names for a native plant of the week, which you covered. Which plant was it? That's harder. Oatmeal. Is it cow parsley? Yes. Is it? Anthriscus sylvestris? Very good. Air punch. <laughs> <laughs> okay, number four. Our very own native Echium, Echium vulgari, or Vipers pugilus, sits in which plant family? Boraginaceae. Yes. Oh, I should have I'm done harder ones. bossing it. Okay. Now, this one is building up, so I'm going to see how quickly you can answer this. Right. Which plant am I describing? Okay. Last question. Oh, I like this. So, it's largely pollinated by flies like the yellow dung fly. Cornus sanguinea no okay no has cultivars which include tanner red thunder and japan uh is it potentilla no okay has old common names like bloodwort and blood stauncher uh is it oh god the grassland one sanguisor no sanguisorba answer Sanguisorba officinalis. Very good. Am I right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very good. Wait. Yeah, great to burn it. Okay. Yeah, well, the last question I was, yeah. was going to be, is edible and tastes vaguely of cucumber? Yeah, would, yeah. Well, well, there you go. Five no. out of five oh listeners. Oh, my God. Okay, I really feel really mean now. <laughs> you think... told me not to be <laughs> I too know, mean. So, well, let's see how this goes. Okay. okay. <laughs> ben, yeah. eyes down. Okay. Question number one. Go on. <laughs> Sorry. What is the botanical name? <laughs> That's a good start, isn't yeah. it? Given to a plant whereby some individual plants have all female flowers and other individual plants have hermaphrodite flowers, as in the origami. Gynodiresi. Yes! Well done. In Lythrum salicaria, or purple loosestrife, the Greco-Roman doctor Dioscorides oh. believed <laughs> believed it had a particular interesting use in agriculture. What was that? Did I say that? Yeah, you did indeed. I don't know. It was to stop cattle from quarrelling. I did say that. Oh, <laughs> I just love that fact. Oh no, yeah, no. Okay, number three. What is the term given to cover the flowering period of any plant? The entire flowering period? Yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, I don't know. Anthesis. Or anthesis. Oh. What All is... Right. <laughs> number four. Yeah. Number four. What is the yellow pigment in plants called? As in the Ficaria verna or lesser celandine? <laughs> God, I was really harsh. The yellow pigment. Oh, no. I don't know. Carotin. Oh, of course it is. Yeah, I knew that. I know you know that. I've given you six questions. 
Uh, well, I could just choose. I'll choose the. Go on, give me the hardest one. Oh, go on then. Yeah, I need to re- oh, recover. To be honest with you, I, I don't know which one is the hardest. Number five. What is the term given to the non-flowering first-year shoot of the bramble, Rubus fruticosa? Primacane. No, no, that's when. No, ah, ah. No, actually, you're right. I've written down the wrong answer. It is primacane. Is that right? No, oh. that's one that flowers on the first year. Okay. Oh, okay, I wrote it down right. See, I'm questioning my questions. Ah, uh, it's Floricane. <gasps> yes! yes! You've redeemed yourself. Well done. Do you want the sixth one? Just fun. Okay, go. Number six, bonus question. What are the wild apples called, which are not the true Malus Silvestris? There is a term given to all the apples, the actual fruits, or, yeah, that aren't the Malus Silvestris, the wild crab apple. Um, does it begin with a double E? Yeah, yeah. Oh, come on, brain. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? Wild, wildlings, wildings. Yes! yes. Well done. God, I saw you actually retrieve that information from a dusty cupboard in that head of yours. That was amazing. Oh, um, well, you won. No, I'm actually. I'm very impressed. You very got, good. Yours was so much harder. Sorry. Oh, I should have got keratin. Yeah, I wouldn't have remembered that one about the, the purple loose drive. No way. It was a bit niche, wasn't it? Yeah, well, it's going to be stuck in my head now. It, well, that's the benefit of tests, I guess. Yeah, that's <laughs> going to be a very, very niche question in a pub quiz if that ever comes up. <laughs> well, hopefully you guys all had a go at that. Yeah, gold we stars all round if you got any of those. Let us know how you get on. And now before we go on to our native plant of the week, we're going to roll the music and say the final thank you because we've shut the GoFundMe page now to all the people who've donated to our fundraiser, Get the Wildlife Garden podcast some gear. Thank you very much to Caroline Bradshaw, Anne Sutcliffe, Catherine Estevarina, Martin Andrews, Teresa Potmeyer, Robert Wakefield, Betha McIlroy, Nikki Cox, James Nuttall, Kerry Sargent, Sam Conboy, Gyeonggi Somlai, Marit Brommer, Hayley Davidson, Andrew Callow, Olaf Heinen, Neil Phillips, Thomas Hinson, Peter Mitchell, Michelle Cooper, and Paul Hamley. Yes, and to the three others that made their donations private as well. We exceeded our target. Thank you to all of you. It's all going to that equipment that keeps us sounding fresh in your ears, hopefully. Yep, I've just bought some new um, software for the editing, which is making my life much easier as well. And the way I was able to do that was all down to your donations. So thank you so, so much. Today, folks, the native plant of the week is the Taxus baccata, or the yew. And this is a beautiful, majestic, slow-growing, dark green, evergreen tree. And it has near mahogany-coloured, thin and scaly bark. The leaves are two to three centimetres long, and they're actually needles, which grow in two rows, but they are soft to the touch if you stroke them. 
The female of the species is dotted with bright crimson berry-like arrows come late summer and autumn, which also rather delightfully go by the name of snotty gogs. Oh, that's nice. It Never is. heard that before. That's how I described me two weeks ago with that cold. Oh, yeah. <laughs> snotty gog. <laughs> Lovely. When you know that Bacatus in Latin means berry-like with pulpy fruits, then it's the specific epithet or the second part of its Latin name, Bacata, suddenly makes a lot more sense. You will often grow as a multi-stem tree, but you'll rarely find one more than 20 metres tall. However, its slow-growing nature and ability to live for a really long time, as we'll see in a second, means that the trunk can reach really quite staggering girths, up to around four metres. Try hugging that, guys. In terms of its natural distribution, it's native to most of Europe, but prefers a more moderate oceanic climate over variable continental ones through to the Atlas Mountains and West Asia. Further north in Britain and southern Scandinavia, waterlogging and lower temperatures limit its growth, while further south into the Mediterranean and beyond, high temperatures and drought are the limiters. In the UK, yew is usually found in well-drained chalk and limestone soil, and when it forms part of the makeup of ancient woodland, it can be found alongside things like beech and maple and also ash. It appears more frequently in the southeast, central England and Wales, and also the Lake District, though it does also grow in northern England and into Scotland, although it's a bit more sparse up there. And where it germinates in woodland, it can create quite localised, dense shade. Of course, you all know, it's also been pretty widely planted in gardens, parks and also churchyards. New woodland is quite a rare type of woodland now. Well, it is. And I was about to say this and I didn't even realise that we had yew woodland. I mean, I don't think I've ever knowingly seen it when we've been out and about. People just see ancient woodland, even the term ancient woodland is sort of a catch-all term. And actually, tree species were different across the country. They were more or less common in different areas. So you'd get lime woodland or you get beech woodland or... You know, well, now you get a lot of beech woodland, but because it's been planted, but you would have got natural beech woodland, hornbeam woodland, yew woodland and so on. Yeah. And yew's actually been on the decline, unsurprisingly, ever since we developed the ability to basically cut it down. So it's our fault, guys, again. I mean, not ours specifically, but you know what I mean? And um, yeah, you will actually pretty much only find significant yew woodlands in the South Downs and with some smaller examples dotted around in County Durham, Morecambe Bay and also Southwest Ireland. As for its folk and history, this is a pretty rich topic and I can only cover a tiny bit of it really. It's got a really strong association with churches, with at least 500 churchyards across Britain containing yews at least as old as the church and quite probably a lot older. The connection's pretty stark and as Richard Maybe wrote in his book Flora Britannica, yews of great ages are rare outside churchyards and no other type of ancient tree occurs so frequently inside the church grounds. One example is a yew in the churchyard of the village of Fortingall, Perthshire in Scotland, and its age is anywhere between two and 9,000 years old. As for why this association exists at all, lots of theories have been put forward, but confirming which is true of these has been made pretty hard by the fact that yews are really hard to pin a precise age to, and that's because after four to 500 years, they actually begin to lose their heartwood and sort of become hollow. So that means that ring counting becomes impossible. And therefore, if you don't know exactly when and therefore who planted it, it becomes almost impossible to work out the reasons why it was put there in the first place. Yeah, we do actually see this quite often. The yews that you can actually walk into the middle of because the trees Mm. all around you, the heartwood's completely rotten away, but they're perfectly sturdy and they're alive. And that's what they're actually designed to do, really. Well, exactly. They're actually sturdier because a cylinder like that is actually 
stronger or a tube is stronger than the the full tree mm. if that makes sense solid tree the celtic word ew i don't know if i'm pronouncing that right but it's just the letters iw together or u i'm presuming it's pronounced the same is one of the oldest tree names and if any listeners are from places with names beginning with ew like ewhurst in hampshire which actually translates to yew tree wooded hill well you have the yew tree to thank it's also the oldest tree genus known to us with yew fossils from the Lower Miocene, which is a really, 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 really long time ago. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All parts of the yew are poisonous, except for the red flesh of those lovely snotty gogs. The wood, foliage and seed within the arils all contain the powerful alkali taxol. So please, please, please don't go eating any because actually just 50 grams of leaves would be enough to do away with you. Saying that, Taxol does have its pharmaceutical uses and in the 1960s was found to be effective against some cancers when processed into a drug. And if you want to know more about the history of the U and its anti-cancer properties, I do recommend listening to David Oak's excellent podcast, Trees A Crowd. And I think it's about a 10, 15 minute program specifically on the U where he goes into a little bit more detail about those things. It's yeah. really well worth a listen. Really good. I know you are going to come on to it later, but just to say that the arrows are the berries. And now, it's time for the sexual antics of Taxus Bacata. Of course, all of our plant sexual antics are exciting. I think everyone would agree. But I'm pleased to be doing this one because it's the first conifer that we've actually covered just to go back a few taxonomic levels, so that's in terms of how we categorise different things in nature, all plants are categorised as either flowering plants, which are also known as the angiosperms, and the non-flowering plants, which are also known as the gymnosperms. Conifers are part of this gymnosperm grouping, and their name, conifer, gives away that they are instead cone-bearing plants. Confusingly, though, you won't find a typical conifer cone on a yew. You will, however, see that there are still male and female cones, all produced at the base of a leaf. And in the case of the yew, which is almost always a dioecious plant, you will get either all female and all male plants. So remember that dioecious means two houses. So you, you need two of those trees, a male tree and a female tree, to be able to pollinate each other. The male cones are two to three millimetres across, they're golden brown and effectively they just comprise of a globose cluster of stamens which are completely full of pollen and this billows out like dust from branches if you ever brush past them in the spring. The female cones, which are actually rather snappily also called ovuliferous brachyblasts. Well, that's one of your five questions <laughs> for next year. you say that. I've set myself up for a real fall here. <laughs> It sounds like a funny put down to me, you ovuliferous blacky bracky blast. <laughs> People would not know how to respond to that, would they? No. They are actually a minute 1.5 millimetres across and they consist of an ovule surrounded by small bracts. That's interesting because I've never seen those. Well. So that's why. Yes, exactly. But to make it even harder, they also start off green. So folks, get your loops out if you want to see one of those. Do you know when in the year they'll be out? The female flowers or yeah, the female open, cones? Well, yeah, they open anywhere between February and April, depending okay. on where you are in the country. I'm going to try and see that. I, that's a challenge for myself this year. Yep. 
we do need to listen back to our programmes and say all the things that we're going to do and actually make a list and make sure we do them. We do quite a lot of them. We do do quite a lot of them. Both of uh, the male and female sexual structures actually form in the second half of the previous summer and then open the following spring. And as I say, that's anywhere between February and April. And when pollinated and fertilised, the inner scale on the female structure swells up to form this red berry-like structure. And that can be up to 10 millimetres across at its biggest. And as I said before, it's actually a highly modified scale, which is botanically called an aral, as Ben just pointed out. And this aral has an opening at the top and it encloses a single large nut-like seed within, which is toxic, FYI. In terms of how pollination happens, I did give a little clue just now in describing these billows of very fine pollen grains from the male plants. And that is because the ewe is adapted to wind pollination, which means that it's anemophilous. And small movements of the stems would trigger it to drop its load and be dispersed. <laughs> I was waiting for a snigger there. I'm keeping that in. Hopefully to then land on a female cone nearby, on a nearby female tree. And that's how it happens. Yeah, you were telling me about the word anemophilus. Oh, it was like the biggest revelation. Yeah, because it's to do with wind. Yeah. Because you have the anemone, which is the wind flower. Yeah. Well, it's anemone nemorosa, the, the, short, right, the yeah. short one that you find in woodland in spring. <clears throat> and that, yeah, it, I mean, it means wind, so wind flower. But then also you measure wind with an anemometer, mm. which is something I remembered from school. But yeah, just these connections. When you start learning Latin, it does make sense eventually. Yew is really valuable to wildlife. And in its dense foliage, invertebrates and birds find really good shelter. I've watched goldcrests and tits of all types flitting about in a yew canopy in a garden. And it's really normal to find things like blackbirds and thrushes nesting in hedges in gardens. As a food plant, the arils are eaten by birds who are thankfully not poisoned by the seeds, which are then pooped out elsewhere to form the next generation that's because most birds i guess they don't actually chew the seed they just pass it straight through don't well they? i'm just about to explain this because this is something that i learned very much from reading a, a good paper on this birds who do enjoy eating the arils are the thrushes and that includes the missile and song thrush and blackbirds red wings and field fare but also robins will eat them blackcaps starlings and nuthatches and interestingly, some birds seem to be okay with eating the actual seed. And the main sort of predator of the actual seed is the greenfinch. And they, with their powerful beaks, grind the seed until the seed coat has been stripped. And then they eat the centre. So it's thought that this removes the part of the seed where the poisonous compounds are actually kept. So it's in that seed coating that is um, that is where those alkaloids are. And the greenfinch just rips those off and then eats the middle. Wow, that's really dexterous. I know, I know. Well, they do have very powerful beaks. I know, but that's yeah. it's still a small seed. Yeah. So they've got to crush it, get to the inside of the seed. Not eat any of that yeah. shell. And yeah. Very impressive. Very impressive. Other birds that can do a similar thing are the nuthatch and also both the green and great spotted woodpecker. But then I like this bit because he's like the scavengers. The chaffinches and other tits have also been observed simply eating the leftovers of those messy green finches. Weirdly enough, hares, rabbits and also grey squirrels seem to be able to browse you without coming to any harm. But they do tend to regurgitate the seed when they eat the arrow. 
And there's also evidence of badgers and foxes enjoying an arrow snack. And those rare yew woods that I mentioned earlier support more wood mice and bank voles than any other comparable deciduous woodlands. Wow, that is mm. surprising. Exactly. So they must because be... Because it must be quite dense woodland. Yeah, but I guess it gives them really good cover from owls. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think it, it works to their advantage. As for the invertebrates, there are a couple of weevils that are supported by you. Quite a few mites. And if you read around this, some of them are really much considered a pest, but I will dance across that. There are also some tree bugs in the form of scale insects. And of course, no one can escape moths, it seems, especially not me. And you and its associate mosses and lichens can support around 10 species of moth that I've read, including the buff footman, the satin beauty and the stunning black arches. So how do you grow it? In general, yew is very tolerant of most soil types, as long as there isn't too much waterlogging. It essentially just doesn't like having wet feet, especially over long periods of time. And it's definitely one of the best evergreens if you have calcareous soil, and that simply means a high pH if you do a soil test. One party trick of the yew is it has the biggest temperature range for photosynthesis, and this means that it can photosynthesise in winter when deciduous trees have dropped their leaves. And this helps it to be extremely shade tolerant, though it will always grow stronger and faster in a more open and sunnier site. If you're not in a rush, then you could try growing you from seed. Collect ripe seed in autumn. Uh, you do have to wash off that flesh, which would stop germination. And then you just simply sow it into a good seed compost. Definitely keep it outside and also be prepared to wait over a year and up to four to see anything happen. <laughs> So that's for the patient of you out yeah. there. On the plus side, germination rates are really high for you. So you have a good stab at successful growing if you actually do this. Alternatively, you can also take cuttings and we'll link how to do that in the show notes. But again, it does take a very long time to root and then start growing. I know this because we, well, you did it on your course as well. Yeah. Did you take cuttings of you? Yeah. Mine sat in its pot for about three years before it put on any new growth. So. <laughs> Don't expect a tree quickly. Yeah, but that's that. most, I mean, you'll come on to the cultivars in a minute, but that's mostly used for, for the more ornamental cultivars, isn't it? Yeah. Once you have yourself a you, they're pretty easy customers. All you have to do is trim as necessary outside the bird nesting season, I will add. And you can do this. I mean, trimming, because as well as not actually having cones, you failed to read the conifer rulebook in another respect. And that is that it copes well with repeat pruning and it will re-sprout from old wood, even when it's cut hard. In fact, there's a tree really close to us, which I've been following the progress of. Uh, who needs TV? Someone chopped off literally all the branches and just left essentially one main bare trunk. trunk. Clear trunk. Clear yeah. trunk. I thought It looked more like a telegraph pole than a tree. And I thought, I didn't know what, I didn't even know what the tree was actually, to be fair. And then all these little green shoots came up off it over the last year. It's quite incredible, really. Yeah. And this is in complete contrast to the mutilation people do to Leylandii hedges. Yeah. Yes. Which yeah. don't re-sprout. Exactly. And then the, you end up with brown. So we always recommend if you want a conifer hedge, go for you over Leylandii. Through you, uh, you can cut them hard mm. and they can re-sprout. But most other conifers, like Ellie says, they just go brown where you cut them, if you cut them into old wood. Yeah. It also means that when you have yourself a you, you can pretty much cut it into any shape you like. 
be that whether you like a nice neat hedge or if you like your topiary balls or pretty much any shape you fancy. However, any topiary enthusiasts out there do be aware that both male and female cones do form on that previous year's growth. So if you're tightly clipping your yew plants, then you're very unlikely to produce those sugary red bird snacks. They're really pretty pest free Mm. and in comparison to box, which is just a nightmare to grow now. If you are looking for sort of a, a formal plant to clip into shape, then you is one of the, the best ways you can go with it. They are very tough, as I say, easy customers to please. Yeah. And actually, uh, just wanted to say they're slow growing relatively compared to other things like Leylandii, but actually they do put on a fair amount of growth each year. Yeah. So if you're growing it as a hedge, especially if you're buying small plants, they can double in size mm-hmm. over a year. Yeah. So they definitely are worth growing for total. Yeah. And they, well, I, I just think they've got a lovely growth rate where you're not waiting for decades for it to form a hedge, but you're also not having to clip it every five minutes like a cherry laurel or something because yeah. that grows like bilio, doesn't it? There are also quite a few cultivars actually for your perusal, but I'll just describe three here. So the version of you that is most commercially available today is the fastidiate irish yew and that's taxus baccata fastidiata and that fastidiata just means upright and the branches do all point upwards making them a favorite for topiarizing and hedging yeah and that's the when you see big columns of yew in the grand gardens that you you know you go and visit that that's the variety that they're using and interestingly that form was first found in a limestone crag in fermanagh in the in the 1760s that's in ireland for a lighter colour, you can also get that one with a golden tinge to its foliage, and that is Fastigiata aurea, or golden Irish yew. Yes, and when we suggest topiary, people often think that yew is really dark, mm. and it's not always. You can get there are quite a few of these cultivars that are lighter, mm-hmm. you know, golden coloured. Yeah, so don't be worried that a yew hedge is, is necessarily really dark. The last one I will describe is more of an interest, uh, as I don't actually recommend it, but there are some varieties that have more yellow arils. So fructo luteo, and luteo generally means yellow, is one of those. And however, the reason why I'm not necessarily recommending that is because the birds and everything don't tend to go for those yellow fruits. But just as a, as a point of interest, you'll still get the shelter in your garden. So that wraps up our native plant of the week. Yes, well, thank you very much, Ellie. You're welcome. You are welcome. Oh, God. No, I didn't know there was so much to know about you, actually. No, it was fascinating. obviously a well-researched plant, although I have to say I'm probably mostly going to remember snotty gogs. And you're going to remember your (laughs) pop quiz, your question. What was the phrase you used? See, it's already gone. Of you something, bracky blast. (laughs) You are going to absolutely take me down in the next quiz, aren't yeah. you? I can yeah. see the evil glint in your eye. <laughs> yeah. I had it coming. Thank you very much to everybody who's been leaving us reviews recently on iTunes. We've had some really lovely ones and on Podbean as well. That's our uh, podcast host and you can leave reviews on there. We'll be reading some of those out in the next episode. But we just wanted to say that now on Spotify, you can review us on there too. You have to do that on the mobile app. You can't do it on the computer. But so far, we've had only five star reviews, which has been lovely. So if you are thinking of giving us a review and you listen on Spotify, then go ahead and tick that button. Thanks, everyone. 
You can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. And that is The Wild GDN on Twitter and The Wildlife Garden Podcast on Facebook. And I just wanted to, at this point, give a shout out to Corvid Crazy Chap. So, yes, we love all the interactions that you give. And I'm sorry for not having mentioned you sooner. <laughs> and also thank you for that wonderful bird quiz that you gave us oh, as well. Oh, that was hard. Yeah, it was good. hard. Did we do all of them in the end? I need to sit down and revisit that, I think. There's yeah. a couple I didn't know. It was tricky, though. Yeah, I mm. liked it. If you are interested in coming along to an event that we would run about how to be a wildlife gardener professionally, uh, you know, where we'll cover a lot of the specifics that you might want to know, give you a bit of head start on your own gardening business, then do get in touch with us because we simply won't run an event. We won't go through the the process of organising everything unless you tell us that you would like to come. Links to everything will be in the show notes, including the papers that we talked about earlier, but also there'll be a link to our email address. So if you would like to get in touch, then it's thewildlifegarden at hotmail.com next episode is in a month yep we are now monthly so don't look for us in two weeks (laughs) but it will be jam-packed full of interesting stuff we promise yeah and by the time this podcast has been edited and gone out we'll hopefully have done our next q a session so there will be a bonus with that coming out at some point so until the next episode all that's left to say is keep enjoying your gardens bye bye